Welcome to Fridays with Fintelect. My guest today is Mark Natal, who currently works for Hill and Associates, where he oversees the firm's operations in Singapore. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute and utter pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Shira. Mark, at the beginning, can you give our listeners a quick overview of your professional background and the work you're involved with currently? Certainly. So um, I was formerly a career detective within New Scotland Yard, uh, Metropolitan Police in London. Um, I then moved on to consultancy um, over a range of both government and private clients. And then I, I was uh, drafted into Interpol as a member of executive staff on a contract there, uh, working within the organised um, and emerging crimes directorate. And now I'm at Hill and Associates, back in a um, back in a role that is a, a very holistic one. Um, Hill and Associates covers a range of risk management um, um, risk management issues and, and, and solutions for um, corporate and government agencies. Right. Mark, so getting right to it, uh, you know, the rate of conviction and asset confiscation in money laundering or terrorist financing related crimes in any country has been abysmally low. And this is, uh, you know, possibly the same across the globe and has not changed much over time. So what would you say are the major reasons for not achieving better outcomes? I would certainly say that it's uh, lack of awareness, um, complication at trial, um, misunderstanding of, um, and, and this is in all due respect, misunderstanding potentially of investigators when they're investigating cases that relate to certainly corporate and legal bodies, um, because these things can be highly complex and traditionally law enforcement or police officers or financial investigators don't necessarily have a background in business. So there can be complications that can be mitigated by defence in court that then lead to either a mistrial or a not guilty verdict. Across the world, obviously, there's a differential between where you've got a judge sitting in, in criminal cases or you've got a jury sitting. Most office, often in jury cases, you'll find that it's, a, it's an abysmally low conviction rate um, due, to, due to those issues and due to the complexities of fraud or money laundering cases that can't be articulated as well um, as, say, a murder case where it's, it's, you know, it, can, it can hinge on a DNA result, for example, rather than the offence itself of where somebody's been stabbed or shot or um, uh, brutally murdered in, in some way, shape or form. It's not as, it's not as and, and I, won't, <laughs> I won't say that these cases are simple, but they are more reflective of what traditional, um, a, a traditional jury would, would learn to understand. Um, and I, I would say that, that fraud is, can be, can be, not always, but can be extremely complex. Um, so it, it, it's often a misunderstanding across the board. And if it's not easily or graphically visualized or, or presented in a very simple way for a jury to understand and then the, uh, the prosecutor to articulate, it can become very confusing very quickly. Right. As, uh, uh, and, and as for the asset element mm -hmm. of it, um, yes. assets, they 
often what occurs with assets is they are, uh, as we're all well aware, moved to other jurisdictions and trying to track and trace those assets in the first instance can be a highly complex money laundering inquiry in itself. Actually identifying, restraining, having the other jurisdiction restrain that off the restraint that's already in place in country A can be a complex, time-consuming, highly bureaucratic matter that needs to occur, and I think we'll come on to that later, needs to occur, but this is what stops the mechanisms from working. And at the same time, if an individual has been either found guilty of an offence or knows that they are being investigated for an offence, they'll then move that item to another jurisdiction or have one of their professionals to move those items, items, assets or commodities to another location. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, you mentioned multiple jurisdictions and so, you know, crime is increasingly multinational. Criminals are becoming more and more professional. So what specific challenges does this bring to the AML CFT ecosystem and in particular to law enforcement agencies? Yeah, I, I, I would I would say on that that crime has always been multinational. It's always been international in in remit. I mean, I, I've, I've led some money laundering investigations where they've been laundering their money through organized criminal networks for over 50 years, for example. Uh, it's only the tools that have changed and the speed at which things can be moved now that has differentiated the environment that we're currently in. Because everything has moved to, uh, or mostly everything has moved to digitalization, things become much easier to move. Commodities become much easier to translate in, into other commodities and different jurisdictions within that time frame allow you to uh, circulate your assets and wealth much quicker um, whereas whereas previously you had to go to a location you had to sign paperwork you had to physically be present to open a bank account to open a company even with facilitators even with uh, you know offshore formation agents or or et al in terms of in terms of crime crime especially within the drugs and firearms trade um, and, and definitely within um, uh, terrorism as, as, and there's some debate whether or not that's a crime and whether that's political or not. But um, it's, it's always been that way. The only time that um, it's wholly national is when you've got the bottom, complete bottom end of criminality. And, and even then, I've known um, bottom end of criminality, street dealers, middle market dealers who still have international assets who will still hide their wealth in Spain, for example, Portugal, if you're looking at the, you know, UK criminals of which I, I, I you know, that my, my background is in at its most peak. <laughs> so um, they will then either, even then will hide their assets in those locations or transfer it over to locations um, that their, their families are in or that they know can be easily hidden, um, you know, say through um, intermediate channels. So for the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, we, we, we've certainly had money intermediaries that have been able to move money quickly. 
over the past hundred years. We've had that anyway, uh, in, a, in a formal sense, never mind outside the world of banking. So I won't name some companies that have done that, but we know that money transfer always goes on, even at, a, um, even at an official level for a movement that isn't, isn't as official as, say, the, 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 the internal traditional banking platforms. Now money can be moved much more easily in a 24 hour fashion and crime can take place in a much more, uh, in, a, in a much quicker, quicker fashion. Right. So, um, Mark, moving to the uh, trafficking side, you know, uh, recently there's been growing spotlight on certain uh, specific areas. So whether it is human trafficking, wildlife trafficking, uh, organ trafficking, environmental crimes, and these were previously not getting the attention that they deserved. Uh, how can AML CFD stakeholders, okay, let's say banks, financial services, uh, become better engaged uh, with combating these crimes and also on the law enforcement side? Mm. I, I, I would say with this, and I've, I've spoken about this previously, is that a lot of environmental crimes, and I'll advert that in commas, is, is, is that they're, they're not actually crimes, they're civil or admin offences. There are some countries that have placed them within their uh, criminal legislation, but they are very few and far between. The most notable are typically wildlife offences that carry with them criminal punishments, but only in certain jurisdictions. I, I, always, I always say that it's in regards to the traditional criminal offences that have a, a high... Um, or, or, or at least a sustaining sentence with them that are uh, easier to put over to a jury that feel like a traditional crime to law enforcement officers. And that, that even within a civilian realm, it can be understood from maybe unintentional actors within the sphere that these are act actually um, uh, enabling offences to other offences that are criminal. So on that, on that arc, what, what I would always say to any type of financial institution or to uh, any type of corporate body is that you need to review the paperwork that comes across with any trades, that, that if there are any um, companies that have been formed for certain means, have you got the right paperwork that allows you to do your KYC or know your customer for that and your due diligence for that and the awareness that is out there that has been um, reiterated via the United Nations and then FATAF and then various other bodies such as the one that I used to work for Interpol that has an environmental um, crime directorate within there it's all about identifying that, right, okay, you've got natural resources. There's nothing wrong with having a natural resource company. In fact, the, the arc of the world spins on natural resources. Everything's made from a natural resource in some way, shape, or form. You know, people talk about the new way to go to um, an environmental, healthy, and conscious lifestyle through electric vehicles, for example. I don't criticize electric vehicles. I've got a hybrid myself. Um, but the batteries are, you know, you've got lithium, nickel, cobalt, etc. that are within there. You've got to have mines to dig those up, <laughs> etc. 
um, at which point the land's got to be stripped anyway to, to enable that mine to exist. So you've got the uh, forests that are cut up, et cetera, et cetera. It's all cyclic normally. So. But if you've got a, a feeling uh, that as a, as a financial institution or a, a corporate body that you have a criminal acting recidivist within your portfolio, then look to the traditional crime, look to the fraud, look to the false declarations, um, look to the industry. Is the industry saying that this amount of money, and we all know through doing due diligence and KYC, that you can get an industry aggregator to understand whether or not this is right within the industry. There's some AML solutions that are currently on the market that do that process automatically. So you don't even need to review it yourself as a KYC professional or a, a STR professional, for example, uh, and, and then review whether or not you feel that there's a criminal element to what is occurring within that, um, within that commodity chain there. So is money being moved to strange jurisdictions? Is money being moved to private accounts? Is it um, is is the amount of money that's coming in right for a consignment of X or or not, um, as the case might be? So it's all about looking at because this is what's going to get police officers interested at the other end when you submit a, a STR or SAR is that actually it's a crime. It's a traditional crime that a police officer can 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 get hold of and say right, well that's a fraud or or that is a false declaration, or um, this looks like it could be part of a criminal network, for example, that's involved in other traditional recidivist crimes. So that's what I would say about environmental, inverted commas, crime, because in a lot of country countries, it's not a crime. So. Right. Um, so Mark, you have, uh, you know, as you said, a lot of international uh, experience, uh, now, there are a number of international cooperation mechanisms for AML CFT, uh, many of which entail bureaucratic hurdles and lengthy processes. Do you find the need for rationalization in these mechanisms, or do you have any ideas on how there can be more efficiency in this international cooperation? At, at the moment, the, the way that it works is that a... Um, a, a law enforcement and a judicial process is gone through in country A. Okay, so if if that process is in place and it's been ratified and these individuals are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in terms of assets and confiscation, then what happens is a letter of request or commission rogatoire usually is sent over via the, um, the associated agency in country, the official agency in country, to country B. And country B then review it and decide whether or not it's legal under their framework to be able to, number one, freeze, uh, and, and there's various different amalgams on that, but freeze accounts or freeze assets, and then reclaim that and go through the very long process that it is to, to have that certain amount of um, asset value transferred back to country A. Or 
transferred to victim through country A, if there's victims involved, which a lot of the time there, there, there can be, apart from obviously in drugs cases and firearms cases. Um, these matters take time, they take energy, they take effort, they take understanding on behalf of the law enforcement professional in country a, <laughs> to, to understand and to have, have communicated sometimes in advance with country B. So there's, there's an intelligence gathering exercise usually that can happen on a police to police basis between uh, say financial investigation unit to financial investigation unit country A to B or between officer, i.e. financial investigator that's in power within country A to country B with obviously all the caveats of is there any corruption or could these could these um, criminals find out about that I'm looking at their their assets or wealth within the investigation stage okay so there are a number of a number of matters and a number of complications that that slow down the process and that's in terms of reviewing it legally to make sure that it's a legal request in the first instance when it comes down to asset seizure and confiscation because these these are big items you know these are taking your money away my money away somebody else's money away if they've acted in a certain way and they have been um they've been found guilty of an offense in country a there is some provision within various countries legislation to freeze that in advance of a confiscation process or a uh, almost a, a found guilty process as well there is some legislation to do that it's used very sparsely and, and in a very limited manner because then the if the defendant is found not guilty there are allocations for that individual or for that company to to sue the law enforcement agency within country a <laughs> we and country b sometimes dip, dependent on 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 what their result is as i've stated earlier if it's a fraud case or a, a, a one of one of those complex matters the um the likelihood of that freeze taking place is lower because it's a lower um it's a lower likelihood of somebody being found guilty of an offense so these these things can occur and happen in terms of up pace and and trying to get these things done quicker yes there should be mechanisms in place to ratify that the problem is and, and we talk about digitization and the way that digitization is changing things and how much quicker it should be the problem is is that laws in countries typically do not change at a fast pace there are a lot of countries that still don't allow for digital documents or digital signatures to be part of the legal process and digitization in terms of transfer of information and documents thus becomes a very gray area for uh, for for countries to act in there's also the problem as well in in the the legal frameworks are wholly disparate different legal frameworks for different countries and yes okay over the past 20 years is 
there's been a, a formation of uh, an equilibrium of governance in terms of AML uh, confiscation, money laundering. But still, there are massive differences because all FATF do is, is say, we are a member agency. Um, we are there to do to, to, to allocate best practice. This is what we feel a best practice from our member states. And as a result of that, these are the recommendations. They're not, they're not saying to countries, you must do this. They're saying these are recommendations. And as a result of these recommendations, we have found that it will work better in your country. The problem is, is that, is that uh, a great many countries, their recommendations don't fit in to maybe the geopolitical landscape, the economic landscape, the functionality of their financial industries within country, the functionalities of their judicial systems, the functionality of their law enforcement systems. So there's a whole disparate range and you cannot plateau it. You cannot say, this is the standard. This is the standard. Everybody's going to work to it in the world, because as we all know, and we've got to be realistic. It, it's 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 never going to occur. I mean, Rome tried it <laughs> and, <laughs> and failed. <laughs> so it's it, it it it's all about for me. And I always used to say this in my old job. It's all about the country and understanding the country and its nuances. So if country A is is fine with um, X legislation and it's within the culture arc of that country, fine. Who is anybody else to say anybody different within that culture? And I've I've always I've always worked that way in in terms of my professional career is 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 that look, you have got to respect the country and what it deems to be right for its citizens. And if then there's a change in political mandate, a change in governance, a change in um, outlook, then then you move with that as well. <laughs> Not to say that it's it's right, but it's that country's prerogative. Right. Excellent. Uh, so, Mark, uh, most of our uh, community consists of compliance officers and compliance teams. Now, what would your advice be uh, to them? Uh, because they're the ones who file the suspicious transaction reports. What is the kind of information that police or investigators would ideally like to have that is currently missing from what the financial sector is able to provide? I, I would say that um, a, a, a law enforcement officer, right, because it wholeheartedly depends how, how the STR flow or SAR flow works in country. So obviously the best practice via FATAF is that it goes to an FIU. The FIU then do their um, certain amount of investigation on it or might be investigating full stop. Um, and then there's a flow of chain of governance, etc. Say, for example, in the UK, when I certainly used to have warranted powers over there, the way that it used to work is that it would flow if it was coming from another country. OK. It would flow through the arc of uh, the international desk. The SAR would then sit with um, the FIU there. Um, and the FIU was a hub. It wasn't an investigatory um, element. It was a hub to then disseminate those suspicious activity reports to duly empowered, warranted, 
officers with additional powers under the Proceeds of Crime Act. Okay, so then they'd be sent down to police officer. Police officer would then look and say whether or not it was it was uh, in in uh, the public's interest to go after. I say this because the ones that typically got flagged were the ones that uh, had to be dealt with expeditiously. Okay, so there were SARS that that had a certain time frame on them to deal with quickly, and the bank had a kind of freezing element within their processes to be able to, to do that. The rest of the SARS, because there were so many of them, a complete flurry of them, they would then sit within a repository for searching mechanisms. So an Intel database to work upon. So the way that police officers like to deal with these things is they will review and, and I know technology has changed this a little bit because there's some keyword analysis, data analytics, etc. That, that now go on with some systems in some FIUs, but the majority not because the majority is still manual. So what they will do is they'll look at it and they'll go right, okay, that's something that we need to be dealing with. And typically it's in relation to the value on what the suspected offence is, okay? So at the other end, where you've got the financial institution and maybe some individuals that aren't, um, that, that, that don't know law enforcement inside and out or criminal offences inside and out, but send a STR and a SAR for either gut instinct or because it looks like a, you know, they've got the suspicion, that's kind of the suspicious activity report, there's some type of suspicion in there. They send it off because of those reasons. And I would recommend keep it as simple as possible, which is amount of money, reason, very, very short in, in sentence and paragraph. Don't overcomplicate it because officer can come back and say, X, uh, can we have further details on this? Or go to a court's court, and get it through a production order mechanism or a subpoena mechanism, et cetera, if that's what goes on. There are some countries that have got automatic, through their ju uh, judicial system, legislative system, that have got automatic access to the banking systems anyway of that country. So they can automatically look at that without having to go for a, a production order, warrant, or a subpoena. So for me, it's all about simplicity. It's about, right, what's the amount, what's your suspicion, and obviously the, the, what companies are involved, you know, but that is part of the STR template, or the SAR template anyway, um, because I've worked within that function uh, as part of my consulting roles anyway, so I, I, I have actually got experience in, in doing these things and working within a financial institution to review these, these processes. Great. So, Mark, we cannot end any conversation these days unless we speak about COVID, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> in, in your opinion, what uh, would you say has been the most significant impact of the pandemic on the money laundering and terrorist financing landscape? And is the pandemic likely to sort of mark a permanent shift in cybercrime or related trends? Firstly, I would say that it is regulation that is, is changing the landscape. While COVID 
has, has, has been in place or rather the um, political decisions around covid and the you know the lockdowns and to keep us at home and to keep us busy at work <laughs> etc is that there's no longer any uh, office romances there's no longer any um there's no longer any coffee room breaks or standing around the the water cooler people have been solidly at work and solidly tasked and as a result solidly churning out regulations all I have seen over the past year, year now, is a flurry of regulations coming out from regulators. No matter which part of the world they are in, they have been busy, busy bees. Uh, not usually, uh, it's not to say they aren't usually, but it's to say that they usually allow for a regulation to come in to see its effectiveness and then to see um, to see how the industry can cope with it. Because people are busy working at the moment consistently, uh, and I, I can I can pledge for that as well because I am an expert. You are as well, should I? Is that is that it never stops now? Is that it's it's all the time, and that banks aren't able to adapt to the regulation or to implement it before another regulation comes out. As a, as a result of that, what's happening is that banks are busy flying around trying to understand the recommendation and the regulations that have come out. And we've all seen the big push and the big arc for um, both environmental in an organizational concept and environmental in a landscape concept. So environmental holistically, right? What's your risk platforms within your institution in terms of uh, some of the cyber elements that you've, you've discussed a moment ago because Mass has pushed out papers in relation to cyber regulation and to issuing um, time mandates on, on when something needs to be reported and in what way and in what shape and how which the banks currently have got to now run around to, to, to implement that because that's a big, a big ask. Uh, so you either come, come to a consultancy like um, ours or somebody else's to, to, to understand that process, or you really have to set something in-house quickly, or you've got the other environmental side of it, um, which is environmental IE out there in the wilderness and what's going on with natural resourcing companies and what's occurring in terms of your, your uh, bad actors footprints in that sphere. There's been a lot of those forms of outputs from, from regulators at the moment. And legislation is, is, is quickly being um, uh, placed out as well and devolved to countries that can't be kept up with. It's, it's impossible to, act, uh, to, to, to ask any type of corporation to quickly run after um, a regulation and implement it without knowing what the impact's going to be. I spoke a couple of weeks ago uh, about this, about over-regulation, about how it needs to be tested and implemented. And yes, it might be, it might be what people in this day and age consider to be slow, but we're human beings. <laughs> we don't. We're not the internet. We're not Google. <laughs> you know, we're not. A, we're not a computer system. 
what we are are human beings. So human beings, even within a construct, need to know how it's going to work, need to know how it's going to be tested, need to understand how it's going to be abided by um, and, and what's going to happen within this, this, this landscape that we've got that's currently 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, because we need to ensure that, that we're still acting with our clients in a humanistic manner, that, that actually our clients are there because the majority of them act in a law-abiding way. Not every business is a criminal business. <laughs> and at the moment, with some of the regulations that are coming out, it's almost as if, right, well, first and foremost, what we need to do is treat everybody as if they're guilty first. Rather than doing it the other way, <laughs> you know, you're only guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And that's the landscape at present. And for me, what COVID's brought, it's brought production in a way and mass production quickly because people aren't um, and, and, and managers are, are managing to direct to create outputs from tasks. Whereas traditionally, being the social creatures that we are, we have, you know, taken us time a little bit with things, which is only natural and, and, and which I recommend really, because the, 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 there is no way that a load of legislation should be put out without any testing or without any understanding of, of the repercussions economically and developmentally for countries, because regulation has impact upon economy. It has impact upon business. It has impact upon people's jobs, people's lifestyles, the way that they um, submit documentation, the way that they act in certain cultures. And, and the regulations that are coming out at the moment will change the way that um, the way that people function. Excellent, fascinating speaking with you always, uh, Mark. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you.